it's time to preach the gospel and who's ready to get into the word. Would you say amen? All right, let's do it. Matthew chapter 27 for a few minutes this morning. Take your copy of God's word and be finding the first gospel. We are continuing in our Sunday morning series on the Jesus method, asking pointed questions for the purpose of developing sharp disciples. Our Lord was an asker of questions. He taught by asking questions. He wanted disciples who could think spiritually as well as rationally. And so he asked a lot of questions and all of them are about different things with different shades of meaning and we've covered the gamut of about 10 or so already. Our final question we'll save for Easter Sunday and it'll be a message that everybody will be able to connect with regardless if they've heard a single one of these previous 11 messages or not. In fact, we're saving the most important question for last and we'll deal with that as we come together next Sunday. How about today we spend about the next half hour or so looking at what may be the most mysterious question that Jesus ever asked. Certainly the most unorthodox question that Jesus ever asked. Unorthodox in the sense that unlike the other questions that Jesus tended to pose in his ministry, questions that were directed mostly to his disciples, or if not to his disciples, those from a crowd, those who might become disciples, all of the other questions that we're looking at in this series, Jesus is asking to human beings of some kind, those who are walking with him or those who have the potential to walk with him. This question we're looking at today is unorthodox in that it's not a question that he poses to his disciples or any other person uh, in the crowd. It's a question that he poses as a prayer to, of all people, his heavenly Father. It's a question that comes from the cross. Important for us to examine today in this Passion Week that we begin this Sunday, a Sunday that in biblical terms was marked by Jesus coming into Jerusalem for his third and final Passover of his three-year public ministry, uh, a journey that would culminate by Friday in Jesus hanging on a Roman cross of wood. And as Jesus died on that Friday, the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record seven statements of our Lord which he uttered from the cross. He may have said more than that, during the number of hours that he hung there and died. But the gospel writers focus on seven statements of Jesus. And one of them is found in the gospel of Matthew. In fact, this is the only statement of the seven that Matthew takes time to record. And it becomes our subject for this morning. Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 and 46. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, to me, that's the most unorthodox of all the questions Jesus ever asked because to whom he is addressing the question, 
But I have to tell you, that's certainly the most mysterious question that Jesus ever utters. In fact, it may well be certainly among the most mysterious statements that are recorded in all of Scripture. Some have called it the most staggering single sentence in all four of the gospel accounts. So challenging was it that even the great intellectual Dr. Martin Luther was said to have been so perplexed by it that he gathered up his Bible and he gathered up his books and he went into seclusion for a period of time simply to grapple with this single question of the Lord Jesus Christ only to have spent a time in isolation and walking away from that time just as confused as when he started. And I don't have to tell you, Pastor Luther was a very smart man. So we began this morning with just an honest assessment. I mean, is it okay to be honest in the house of God? Amen. This is hard territory. This is a tough statement. We're treading on difficult ground here because if Jesus is God, and I believe Jesus is God in the flesh, I believe the Bible is very clear about that. From Matthew all the way to Revelation and even throughout the Old Testament, that's who the Messiah was, God who took on flesh. And if Jesus is indeed God, how is it possible for God to forsake God? Well, as you could probably imagine, this question has led to all kinds of debate, all kinds of speculation. Uh, I think I can summarize it down to three potential kinds of cries that this is from the cross. Some have argued that it's a cry of anger, that Jesus just ticked off at God because of the nature and the level of his suffering. Some have called it the woe is me syndrome. I mean, if Jesus' hands had not been affixed to the cross by spikes, he would have surely had them balled up in a fist, shaking them toward heaven. He was so angry, saying, God, how could you do this to me? I gave up my rightful place in heaven. I turned my back on the riches of heaven to descend to the devil's playground to live among people who were mean-spirited and broken and ungrateful. And I lived in perfect obedience. I didn't sin one time in my mind. I didn't sin one time with my hands, with my feet, or with my body. I did everything you led me to do. And yet they've nearly beaten the life out of me. They plucked my beard. They've scourged me. They've put a crown of thorns on my head. They've spat in my face. They've gambled away my clothing. And here I am, totally naked, standing among all of these passerbys who are ridiculing me as they walk by one right after another, nailed to this cross, dying a slow death. Have you ever been angry with God? Most of us here in the room would say, I can relate to that, but not Jesus. See, that would have revealed a major character flaw. When we get angry with God, we get angry with God because of misunderstanding. We don't understand what God is doing. I think Christ fully understood what God was doing. I think he understood God's plan for his life from the time that he began his public ministry, certainly. And he lived his life to accomplish and complete the will of God Absolutely. 
So yes, Jesus was fully human, but also Jesus was obviously divine and he knew from the beginning that his life was on this trajectory that would lead towards suffering and death and the cross. He'd been preaching that very thing for the last 18 months to his disciples, telling them the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and he must suffer and he must die. And on the third day, be raised again. So the anger option doesn't fit. Jesus knew what was coming And he was experiencing exactly what he knew he would be experiencing. Others have called it a cry of loneliness, a cry of loneliness, that Jesus was expressing feelings of isolation as he died on the cross. And again, I think most of us here in the room can identify with that. Anybody in the room ever felt lonely before, ever felt isolated, ever felt like that you were removed from God in some way? I mean, there are a lot of lonely people in the world as a group, stay-at-home moms, can be some of the loneliest people on the planet. Isn't that right? The elderly who live alone can be some of the loneliest people on the planet. You know who I'm told the loneliest category of group in America today are college students. How about that? And I can remember that was my freshman year is the loneliest I've ever felt in my life. And I was surrounded by a gajillion people. You can be lonely in a crowd. Isn't that right? But the question is, is this Jesus feeling isolated and lonely? Without question, our Lord had to endure the cross alone, no doubt. He's hanging alone. Now, he's got thieves on either side of him, but they ain't bearing the sin of the world, right? They're just paying for crimes committed. Now, our Lord was bearing the cross alone. Now, he had a few people there. His mother was there. And the, uh, the disciple whom he loved, the disciple John was there. We know that because that was another saying of Jesus. Woman, behold your son, son, your mother. So he's entrusting his mother to the care of the one disciple that bothered to show up. All the other disciples had left. They had all fled. So there's no question what he's enduring. He's enduring fundamentally alone, though he did have some people there with him. Some women folk were there with him. And there's no evidence, though, that throughout his life, Jesus ever really wrestled with loneliness, not as we wrestle oftentimes with loneliness. So I think that this is a deeper cry than Jesus just expressing what he's feeling in his heart, potentially. And that leads, of course, to a third possibility, one that's bound up in the language of the question itself, and this is where words matter, Because Jesus is asking in the question, my God, my God, why hast thou what? Forsaken me. So that's the most important word of the question. So we need to ask, what does that mean? It means to desert. It means to utterly abandon. And I think that's what you got going on here. More than this being a cry of anger, more than this being a cry of felt loneliness, this is a cry of desertion. This is a cry of abandonment. This is a cry of dereliction. There's a big difference between feeling lonely and being abandoned. Everybody with me say amen. Most all of us have felt lonely. But I doubt there's very many, if any, people in here today who could stand up and say, you know what? At one time in my life, I was totally abandoned. I was left alone. 
with no resources, not of my own choosing, no resources, no one there for me, no one to care. I didn't know where I was going, didn't know what I was going to do. I was totally abandoned. Most people can't make that statement. So there's a big difference. Again, you can be lonely in a crowd. I felt lonely, and I got a billion people running around me, right? But that's not being abandoned. I've never been abandoned as a pastor, though I may have felt lonely a time or two. Everybody tracking with me? And this is what you have here. Jesus becomes, for a time, God-forsaken. And that's what makes it difficult, because he's God in the flesh. And how can God forsake God? There's a powerful scene in the movie Clear and Present Danger with Harrison Ford. Those are the kind of movies, man, Patriots game, Clear and Present Danger, that you can watch like a thousand times and they never get old. And if you've ever seen Clear and Present Danger, you know it has to do with the drug cartel in Colombia. And there is a covert CIA military operation that takes place where the National Security Advisor of the United States is undertaking a mission to bust up this drug cartel without congressional approval, which makes it basically an illegal action. They're trying to keep it under wraps, but yet the news begins to get out. I mean, Jack Ryan is sniffing around. We know we got trouble. And so people start getting found out, and the NSA director shuts the thing down, and he pulls the plug, leaving those soldiers in the bowels of the jungle with no reinforcements and no air cover and no way to get out. He pulls the helicopters out, leaving them there to face an army of mercenaries badly outnumbered. And most of them, of course, die. That's abandonment. And in many respects, that kind of thing is what happened to Jesus. Not only did he feel abandoned by the Father, he was abandoned by the Father. And the critical question is why? I'll get to that in a second. Before we do, let me set the stage for you. Because Jesus had been nailed to the cross since about 9 o'clock that Friday morning. And for the first three hours of his crucifixion, from the third hour to the sixth hour, high noon, Jesus is suffering and dying in broad daylight. Contrary to a lot of the old hymns we sing, he's not on a hill far away. He's in a very public part of Jerusalem. I don't think it was up on a hill at all. I think he was crucified down in a place where there was a, a lot of traffic. That, that was like the point. The point was for the cross to act as a deterrent. You don't crucify people in isolation. You crucify them in the most public way. And so Jesus had been hanging in a very public way, totally exposed, totally naked, all these passers-by, and then by noon, darkness covers the land. Now, lest you think that's just a natural phenomenon, not like a solar eclipse, it couldn't have been a solar eclipse because it's at Passover, and at Passover, there's like always a full moon, and you can't have a solar eclipse and a full moon at the same time. Somebody say amen. This is supernatural darkness. 
because Jesus was becoming the darkness of sin. He was the sin bearer. And God orchestrated it in such a way so that was what was happening in Christ was happening over the land. Darkness. Darkness is a symbol for sin. It's a symbol for judgment. And we'll see how that plays out here in a second. So that's the first thing you notice. Darkness over the land, symbolic of sin and judgment. The second thing that you need to notice is the question itself, which is a biblical quotation. What we have here in Matthew 27, we also have in Psalm 22.1. It's a direct quotation. Psalm 22.1 begins with the same words, David writing, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And Jesus quotes that and applies that for what's happening in his own life to what's happening in his own life. Now, we don't have time to read the whole 22nd Psalm. And David had been abused. He was being threatened by Saul and he was on the run for his life. But listen to some of the very precise and shocking language of Psalm 22, beginning in verse 7. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of the earth, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. They never did that to David. He ain't talking about himself. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. Does that sound familiar to anybody in here? I mean, a lot of that stuff, that's exactly what happened to Jesus. And a lot of this stuff, some of it can be applied to David in his flight from Saul, but not all of it. This is the language of execution. This is what we call a messianic psalm. This is a prophetic psalm written centuries before the actual event. And it points forward to what would happen to the Messiah of Israel, what would happen to Christ. And all of these things, of course, did happen to Jesus. And dramatically, here on the cross, Jesus shows us that he knows exactly what's going on because he applies the first statement of that prophetic psalm that was written fundamentally about him, and he applies that to himself. And the cries given in Matthew's gospel in the mother tongue of the Lord Jesus Christ exactly how he would have uttered it. It's in Aramaic. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And what you need to notice is the form of address that Jesus uses toward God. My God, my God. And what's unusual about that is that's an unusual way for Jesus to address God. How does Jesus normally address God throughout his three-year public ministry? He addresses him as what? Father, that's right. And indeed, in some of the other cries from the cross, two of them, 
Three out of the seven cries from the cross are addressed to God. The other four are addressed to people. And in the other two of the three cries that are addressed to God, Jesus calls him Father both times. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's the first cry from the cross. And the last cry from the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The only other time, though, seems a little more remote, doesn't it? A little more distant. My God. Sounds kind of formal. It'd be like me going up to my dad that I called for most of my life, either dad or daddy, and going up to him and saying, hey, Mr. Locke. And he would have turned around and looked at me like I'd lost my mind. Now, would I have been wrong in calling him Mr. Locke? No. It would have been correct, but it would have sure been distant because that's not how I normally address my father, right? Every husband and wife in the room should kind of know what I'm talking about with that because sometimes y'all get in a tiff, right? And ain't no honey baby going on anymore, you know? And for me, when Judy gets ticked off at me, she calls me like by my whole name, Jim Locke. And I know I'm in big trouble, right? There is a distance between us that I'm gonna have to figure out how to breach. It's kind of what you have going on here to a degree. Now, let's just cut to the chase because here's, I'm gonna tell you what you got going on here in my humble opinion. You've got God the Father in part separating himself for a time from God the Son, turning his back in terms of their intimacy, in terms of their fellowship. Jesus never loses his identity as God the Son when he dies on the cross. And he never loses his relationship with his heavenly Father any more than the prodigal son ever lost his relationship with his heavenly Father, even though there was a tremendous distance. Even when he was in the pig pen, he was still his Father's Son, isn't that right? The Son of his Father. Jesus was still the son of his father. He doesn't lose his identity as part of the Godhead, part of the Trinity, nor does he ever cease to become less than God. But somehow, in a way that we can't completely understand this side of heaven, God the Father turns his back on God the Son as he bore the sins of the world and because he was bearing the sin of the world. Their relationship wasn't broken but for a time, their fellowship surely was. Their intimacy was broken for a time. Again, it's much like a child being disciplined by his father. I, I, we did our best to discipline our children in appropriate kinds of ways, and I did discipline my son in ways I would never try to do today or he would beat me up because he's like bigger than I am. But I would discipline him, and he'd go off in a different part of the house, and I'd go off in a different part of the house, and I felt different. Sometimes I would cry more than he did. And sometimes he would feel different. He'd avoid me for a time. You know what I'm saying? Again, all y'all husbands and wives know what I'm talking about because you're one flesh, but why are you living in different parts of the house? Because something has happened, and even though you're still one flesh, the intimacy has been ruptured. The fellowship has been broken. Not the relationship, but the fellowship, and you're just about as far apart as you can be. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? 
Those aren't perfect analogies because we're dealing with mystery here. But I think it comes fairly close. Still one, but distant. Only indescribably worse. Because what Jesus has got going on here is a kind of agony that we, we won't even remotely understand. The words that come out of his mouth in the, in the, in the Aramaic are literally, my God, why me, you have forsaken. That's the way it reads right off the page. And you kind of condense that down. What is Jesus saying? My God, why me? Why me? You have forsaken. Why me? Who never did a single thing, never thought a single thought that was sinful? Why me? who lived in the glory of your presence and your power like no one ever has before or ever will again? Why me, who accomplished your will perfectly and did everything you sent me here to do and everything you sent me to accomplish all the way to this cross? Why me, you have forsaken? Now, you have to remember that God was doing two things in the crucifixion. One, he was judging the sin of the whole world. Your sin, my sin, sins of people that have never been born, judging the sin of the contemporaries, judging the sin of people that had already come and gone. He's judging the sin of the whole world in the dying body of Christ. And then two, which is exactly that, he's judging sin in God the Son, his only begotten Son. And it's for that reason that Jesus for a time becomes what we would call God forsaken. It was necessary And the reason it was necessary is because God is what kind of God? God is a holy God, righteous God. And righteousness cannot fellowship with sin. And what was Jesus becoming as he was dying on the cross? The embodiment of all sin. And so therein lies a problem. Because when somebody in your family sins, you just want to kind of gloss over it. You don't want to confront it. Oftentimes, we'll wink at it. Ah, it's not that big of a deal. God is holy. God can't do that. He has to judge it because a part of his holiness is absolute justice. There has to be a price paid for sin. God can't just forgive and move on. No, there has to be a price paid to satisfy the justice of God who's been offended because of the sinfulness of humanity. That's why Jesus had to die. And God cannot fellowship with sin. The Bible says about Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Operative phrase, God made him to be sin. Jesus became sin. Or 1 Peter 2 and 24, Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, which is a euphemism for the cross, the cross of wood. Or Galatians 3 and 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a what? A curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You can go back to the minor prophets like Habakkuk who made it very clear that God not only could not fellowship with wickedness, God could not even gaze upon it. God can have nothing to do with sin, wickedness, evil, nothing. And so because 
God the Son was bearing the sin of the world, Father God in his holiness and justice turned away for a while. And that kind of helps us make sense in terms of why our Lord Jesus was struggling as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he died. I'm telling you, if it had not been for that group of angelic hosts that was ministering to him, Jesus may well have passed away in the garden, sweating great drops of blood, face first in the ground. And why was he doing that? Well, it's bound up in the prayer that he prayed to Jesus. Father, let this cup, what? Pass from me. Well, why was he praying that? Well, that cup was a picture of the wrath of God. It's the way it's demonstrated through much of the prophetic writings of the Old Testament. The wrath of God against sin poured out against sin. God is a God of love, but also a God of justice who meets sin unatoned for with judgment. And that's bound up in the cup of God's wrath. And in the garden, Jesus had a vision of it. He could see in it. God gave him a glimpse of it as he wrestled in the garden. That peaceful place became a place of angst, a place of horror, a place of agony as Jesus viewed the cup of the wrath of God that he and only he could imbibe from. He had to drink it. The cup had to be poured out on his dying body and he could look into that cup and see every sin that had ever been committed, every rape, every murder, every act of theft, every lie, every scandal, every impure thought, every sin that had ever been committed and ever would be committed by any human who ever had been or ever would be born was contained in the vision of that cup. And when Jesus looked at it, God gave him a reflection of himself to drink from it as only the sinless son of God, the lamb of God could take away the sin of the world. And it horrified Jesus even to the point of death in the garden. But thank God he didn't pass the cup. He was willing to take it. And that's reflected, of course, in the conclusion of that great prayer. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And the prescience that Jesus had in the garden was now becoming reality on Friday. As the cup was poured out on his suffering, dying body. Because that's why I came. 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world, finished the sentence for me, to what? To save sinners. And the way he accomplished that was by becoming sin in their place taking the judgment of God. God forsook the Son so that he wouldn't have to forsake you and me. God judged sin and the body of his dying son so that he wouldn't have to judge it in you or me. He judged the son so that by faith he could offer us forgiveness. And that's what the Bible calls grace. That's what makes the cross so special. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it 
white as snow. Maybe that'll take a little bit of the mystery out of this incredible cry of dereliction from the dying Lamb of God. May I leave you with a couple of points of application before we take the Lord's Supper this morning? One is simply this, as with Jesus, so with you and me, sin puts a distance in your relationship with God. Jesus was abandoned because of sin, not any sin he committed, but because he was bearing ours. And sin in your life has a direct effect on your fellowship with God. Now, if you're here this morning and you've been born again by faith in Jesus Christ, you've trusted Christ to save, would you shout amen this morning? So you don't ever have to worry about losing your eternal relationship with God. But if you play fast and loose in sin with sin, it's going to mess up your fellowship with God. There'll be a price to pay, and God will become distant. Have you ever had a situation where you felt God was distant? Can I make a radical statement this morning? God never moved. God doesn't ever move. If there's a distance, you've removed yourself from God because of sin. And that takes me to a second thing, and that is this. Praise God, broken fellowship can always be restored. Isn't that great? I love 1 John 1, 9. In fact, let's just put it on the screen, fellas, and let's all say 1 John 1, 9 together. Ready? Together. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is that just not one of the greatest promises in all of the Bible? Amen. Sin creates a distance in our relationship with God, but praise God, broken fellowship can always be restored. I told the nation of Israel, Malachi 3 and 7, return to me and I will what? Say it out loud. I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. In fact, you read throughout the Old Testament at least a dozen times in the Old Testament, maybe more, you have that phrase repeated, return to me, return to me, return to me. There's always an avenue of returning for the child of God whose relationship with the Father has been breached because of sin. God can't look upon sin But thank God, sin can always be forgiven. Fellowship with the Father was restored for Jesus. And fellowship with the Father can be restored for us. And by the way, it's that promise, I think, that enabled Jesus to face the cross. Because even as he was dying on the cross, the worst kind of death Don't you know that Jesus knew that resurrection was only hours away? Somebody say amen this morning. Resurrection was only hours away. And with the resurrection, sin would forever be defeated and his fellowship with the Father would forever be restored. That's true for all of us as believers, man. You trust Jesus to save you. He moves into your life. He establishes an eternal relationship with you. And the Savior that endured the agony of abandonment makes a promise to us when Jesus moves into your life. 
that Savior that was forsaken for a time by God on the cross makes a promise to you. The first promise the Lord Jesus Christ makes to a believer whose heart he inhabits is, uh, for forever is the promise, I will never leave you nor what? Forsake you. What happened to me on that cross ain't gonna happen to y'all. Amen. I will never forsake. I was forsaken. so that you'd never have to be. And that's why we love our Lord Jesus so very much. Man, if there's ever a doubt, the price that Jesus paid to forgive your sin, if there's ever a doubt, the price that Jesus paid to bring you into his eternal family, if you ever have a doubt about the precious promises of God and whether they're real or true, I'm just saying you need to just ponder long and hard on the most staggering question that you find anywhere in the Bible and never forget what our living Savior did for you. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me?